You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening, and I would like to welcome you to the Pratt Library's Write Alive series. And for our upcoming 2019, we are so pleased to have our special guest, Dr. Katrina McDonald, uh, who joined the faculty of John Hopkins in 1994. She is a native of Northern California, and she received her Master's of, of Arts degree in Applied Communication Research from Stanford University and a Master of Arts degree in Sociology from the University of California, Davis. And a PhD was awarded to her in 1995. Currently, she holds the title of Associate Professor of Sociology and Co-Director for the Center for Africana Studies. She earned her tenure in the spring of 2006, and she was the second black woman ever to be awarded tenure in the School of Arts and Sciences or the school of the School of Engineering at Hopkins. She served as the Associate Dean of Multicultural Affairs from 2008 to 2010. And her other professional affiliations are with the American Sociological Association, the Hopkins Black Faculty and Staff Association, the Hopkins Population Association, and she is a member of the Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, Inc., along with Kamala Harris. She recently ended her term as a gubernatorial appointee to the Board of Directors for the Maryland Humanities Council. Her research and teaching interests focus on explicating how life is lived at the margins of society for disadvantaged social groups, such as racial, gender, and class minorities. This evening, Professor McDonald will discuss her work, Embracing Sisterhood, Class, Identity, and Contemporary Black Women. Please join me in welcoming Katrina McDonald to the Pratt Library. Thank you so much, Vivian. Vivian is wonderful. If you don't know Vivian, she has a wonderful job here in the African-American section. And uh, she has been a, uh, we've grown to be friends, and I was happy to come here this evening and share some of my work with you all. And what an audience, fun people I know well. Uh, and I'm grateful for your presence. Um, she gave you information on my background. I just wanted to add that um, it is absolutely true. Most people don't believe when they hear that when I was tenured in 2006 at Johns Hopkins, I was only the second black woman to have that honor. It's absolutely true. And it's arts and sciences and engineering, so all of the programs that are on the Homewood campus. Um, we've improved that a bit. I believe in total there's five there's four tenured, four four professors tenured, and one who probably we will be, um, but that's that's a small number when you think that when you know that there's 400 and some odd faculty in total, right? Uh, nonetheless, I'm grateful to have had a 25-year history at the university with some wonderful people who supported me and great students to teach. And what I'd like to talk about this evening is um, my first book, and as uh, she uh, gave you the title, Embracing Sisterhood, I'm going to pull some um, specifics from the book to talk about tonight, um, and then I'm going to open up for questions and answers at the end. But I should warn you in advance, I walk around a lot, 
And uh, I tell a lot of stories that uh, sometimes run on, so I'll be careful not to do that. <laughs> and I'll be careful to use the right direction on my clicker here. So again, my work focuses on how life is lived at the margins of society for disadvantaged groups. And more often than not, um, I focus on African-American women, but not exclusively, but African-American women is certainly my, my central focus. But I always have to warn some people in advance that what I write, what I write are not memoirs, because people almost always assume if it's a black woman writer, <laughs> right, she's writing about herself. Um, and I don't write fiction. I'm a social scientist, and as a social scientist, I have to follow certain protocols to make sure that the evidence I gather is solid um, and has, has backing. And so again, I have a passion for the black woman and for black families. And so the second book that I've produced just came out last year called Marriage in Black. Um, I was uh, very excited about the opportunity to just kind of tell the story of black marriage. We don't talk about black marriage in this country. We talk about black divorce and black non-marriage. But I wanted to know what it goes on in the lives of young married couples, who people actually married. So that's what that book is about. And I just learned a few days ago that the book has won an award from the Association for the Study of African American Culture and History. So I'm very excited about that. Thank you. So I already covered that. I wanted to clarify even further that what I do is qualitative research. That's where um, I largely do in-depth interviewing of individuals, and my data analysis is based on the transcripts I derive from fairly extensive interviews within, with individuals. And so there lies the title of the book for tonight and the second title of the book I just told you about. Um, and my life is immersed in sociology. Let's be honest about that. So tonight we're talking about the currency of black sisterhood. And by the term currency, we mean the value, the value placed on that, or the widespread acceptance of an idea or practice. So specifically here, the idea would be black womanhood, and the practice is the sisterhood among those women, right? So it's important that you understand that before I move forward Almost in every conversation I have academically, I feel it's important to ground it in my own personal roots, uh, particularly social scientists, I would say, but really all academics and all people who are researchers end up doing work based on who they are. So we talk about starting where you are and coming up with the subject matter that we, that we ultimately follow. Um, and that's definitely true for me. And it has to do with the fact that I acknowledge this. This picture, this picture, 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 is there a picture? Can you hear me if I talk like this? Louder? Louder. Where's my, excuse me. Because I have to step away to show you something. Should be all set. Okay. Great. I just wanted to explain this photo. This is a picture of a family on a plantation um, just after slavery, within about seven years. This is my grandfather. 
This is my biological grandfather on my mother's side. By now, my students say, oh, no, you're wrong. That slavery, that slavery thing was a 1,000 years ago. <laughs> and I said, no, not quite. <laughs> quite literally. This is my grandfather. Now, there's some people in this audience, Sharon. And who does that look like? Looks just like my mother, doesn't it? <laughs> Looks just like my mother. So when I look at this picture, my first connection to a sisterhood is bonding with this woman I never met but who went through slavery and had children, and I became a product of all of that. So I always like people to look at me in that way first before you hear anything else I'm going to say, that I am of African descent. I represent the African diaspora. My life is African. I am only black because somebody made me black <laughs> by coming to this nation and our having to make the distinctions of various sorts, whether it's being labeled African-American, black, whatever, we've wrestled with who we are, but we're really African. Okay? That said, as I move forward with my research, I recognize then that race is a primary theoretical tool that we use to understand the lives that people are living. Understand that I don't believe in race. I don't believe race is a real thing. There's a human race, and I like to think of us like the scriptures say, we're just beautiful, different lilies of the field. But history and the actions of historians, meaning the actors on the ground, made it such that we had to focus on something called race. It was a very convenient way to subjugate people. So there's been a whole school of thought about the significance of race. And for me tonight, it is to recognize that black women being of that race or being labeled of that race find that they bond just simply because they know they've lived similar lives in that skin. So race becomes a bonding agent. And then there's the class school of thought, the social class school of thought, that argues that there was a time, yes, that we could argue that race held black people together. They were struggling together on the ground but then over time, the African-American population diversified, and it's grown and grown in its differences, particularly around class issues, meaning access they have to the goods of the land. And some people argue that class now trumps race in terms of bonding, that people of class likeness are stronger, more strongly knit than people of race um, background. It's a debate. But it's one that you have to engage when you recognize that as I talk about African-American women, they're not all going to be in one class category. They're going to be across class. So I have to admit that class is an element that could shape the way that sisterhood is thought about. And lastly, there's black feminist thought, which tries to bring together race, class, and gender, actually. It tries to say that you can't look at just one dimension. People's bodies represent all kinds of axes of difference, right? One of the most profound writers on this subject, and in fact the book is called Black Feminist Thought, is Patricia um, Collins, right? She wrote about how black women um, struggle through multiple identities as they walk the earth, and they have to kind of shift and, and mold accordingly. And social class is an element that often comes into play. So there's three axes of difference that we talk about primarily in sociology, race, class, and gender. But we've learned to move beyond that to look at religious differences, sexuality differences, and lots of others as well. But these, were, these are still pillars. 
So before I could begin to understand contemporarily what black women were thinking about in terms of this notion of sisterhood, I said, I've got to figure out where did the sisterhood notion come from to begin with? Well, I remember being in probably as back as far as undergraduate school, a lot of my teachers mentioning something about, oh, sisterhood is something we've always had, you know, that our four mothers in Africa, you know, raised the banner of sisterhood and that sort of thing. But I never found any evidence of that. And so before I started writing this book, I said, you know what, I better check. (laughs) So there's a chapter in the book that focuses on the deep collective roots. Where does it come from? And I did a study of literature that talked about women in Africa, primarily in West Africa, where most slaves came from. The idea being that we know that uh, there wasn't a complete break with us coming to the United States of the culture we had, but I didn't understand what about the old culture would have specified a need for women to bond together, right? Well, the truth of the matter is they did, but it wasn't in the same kind of political sense that we talk about sisterhood today. So African-Americans today, uh, African-American women, when they talk about sisterhood, they recognize that they uh, represent a particular place in the society and that they have... um, Uh, needs that have to be met through a certain kind of political struggle. Now that comes from the moment we came to this soil. We didn't have to struggle like that in Africa. When we came to this soil, women found that they were a resource for their community in a political sense. Very different than the way that women operated in West Africa at the time of the Atlantic slave trade. So what I discovered is that, in truth, the notion of sisterhood is really something born out of this American existence. Um, Now, a lot of organizations in the past have um, formalized this notion of sisterhood. We had a long social movement called the Black Women's Club Movement that actually began in slavery and went almost into the early 50s, where women bound together in their communities in small clubs to to care for the black community through education, health. They had uh, small banks, all kinds of things to support the black community. And it's the, the history of that is rich and deep, and I go into it in detail in the book. There's also, of course, within civil rights and the black power movement, a lot of very important women who, again, formed almost like caucuses of, of womanhood behind these movements. Most people don't know the civil rights movement was won by women. The black power movement ultimately sustained itself through women. I had the um, opportunity to introduce Angela Davis at Hopkins three years ago. It was a highlight of my career. And then this past May, we had a wonderful commemoration of the 1968 civil rights movement. You know, we've been celebrating that for the last year, 68 to 2018. Um, we had an event um, near the School of Medicine at the Turner Auditorium, and one of the things that I got to do was to interview in front of the audience a woman by the name of Erica Huggins. Erica Huggins was the wife of John Huggins, who was a Black Panther member who was at UCLA and was shot down by the FBI with two other men. One of the many cases of the government subverting the Black Panther Party at the time. When I was an undergraduate at Mills College, I took a a class on social movements, and the teacher said, your assignment is to go out and find the remnant of a movement. To which I said, what the heck? (laughs) 
But I don't know what I did, but I somehow found Erica Huggins in Oakland, California. I was at Mills College in Oakland. My mother had been a Black Panther member, so I used the little network I had, and I found her still in Oakland. And that would have been, what, 1982 or something, okay? And she let me come to her home and sit in the living room and interview her about the women's role in the Black Panther Party. And I recorded on a cassette tape, and I sounded horrible. I was a bad interviewer. I was 19 years old. But I kept those tapes all these years. And then when this event was planned last year for uh, the commemoration of the Civil Rights Movement, I said, wouldn't it be cool if I could find Erica Huggins? And I did. And she came. And we, we reenacted that interview I did at 19 at that event. You can find it on YouTube, I think. So again, women power, women's, women were working through these formalized avenues. Now we have Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement a kind of newer version of what has been going on all along. Now, I'm not focusing on the formal stuff today. I'm actually going to focus on the informal, but I didn't want to not acknowledge these other powerful representations of black sisterhood. Um, So I'm talking more at the interpersonal level when it comes to the sisterhood issue. And and I pose the question, this is how I started this work. I pose this basic question about black sister. Or is it really more like a black stepsister today? <laughs> right? I was trying to understand and as we entered into the 21st century, is black sisterhood really anchored? Or has it taken on the likings of a stepsisterhood? Something kind of in the fairy tale version. And even sometimes in the real life version of, you know, a stepbrother, stepsister sort of angst. So I'm contrasting these two ideas. So there's a famous story I have to tell you about, and it's in the book, and my students think it's hilarious, so I thought I'd share it with you. But this is literally how this book began. Though the subject of the text that I've written has been of great interest to me for many, many years, it was a chance encounter with a young black woman a few years back that provided me with the impetus to develop its particular line of inquiry. I was waiting in the lobby of an oil and lube shop for my car to be returned when I suddenly heard music from the lobby television announcing a promotion of a popular national talk show. Curious about what the the subject would be for that day's show, I looked up to watch the brief overview. A 20-something-year-old black woman standing near that television set, also waiting for her car, did the same. Just as the promo ended, the young woman looked back over her shoulder at me and said, She ain't even black anymore. I don't even bother to watch her silly little show. I answered, really? What makes you say that? (laughs) She replied, nothing about her is real anymore. Look at what she says and who she says it to. The show in question, The Oprah Winfrey Show. So my graphic at the beginning that showed Oprah Winfrey and Michelle Obama now you know why Oprah was there. You have to wait till the end to know why Michelle was up there. Okay? So fictional television, as well as sociological literature, um, tends to suggest that, um, pardon me, tends to suggest that certain social environmental conditions, such as this increased socioeconomic diversity that's happened among black men, women, may serve to unearth tensions with the contemporary family of black women, these tensions likened to poor bonding, or what I call the stepsistering problem. 
So then we get to go, hmm, that's all we're going to say. Hmm. These are the images of black womanhood in today's society. I don't watch any of these shows. I can't stomach it. (laughs) There are people who live by them, but I find them degrading. So from that Orland Lube Shop's encounter came some driving questions. What is the relative degree of black sisterhood and black stepsisterhood that exists among African-American women in the 21st century? Question number one. Number two is how are these two ideas articulated and experienced in black women's everyday lives, both within and across class lines? Now, my training tells me you can't ignore class. You just can't. Class is profound in our culture, right? So I decided that that would be the primary um, element of my vision of the data I collected to see whether or not um, class was uh, significant in describing or or guiding the way black women associated with one another. But I also kind of took a middle ground. I wasn't sure just how profound it would be. So I tried to keep an open mind, I guess is what I'm trying to say, about what significance that would have. So to address the two questions I just posed, I constructed a study that was executed primarily between 2001 and 2002. That's when I actually was in the field gathering my data. And I just wanted to tell you a little bit about that data. I approached 126 different black women in the larger Baltimore, D.C. area and beyond uh, uh, a bit, too, uh, to see if they might be interested in joining in a conversation with me. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, I couldn't shake the quantitative training I had had in graduate school. I was actually supposed to be some like really sophisticated, statistical, economic something, something. But because of where I was led, you know, substantively, I ended up doing more qualitative work than quantitative. But I still got this hankering to prove that I could do something of a quantitative nature. So I consulted a colleague of mine at the University of Michigan who had been for a long time doing a survey of African Americans across the nation, um, asking a, a variety of questions that were both about economics and education and and a political ideology, a lot of different subjects, I decided to take that survey and feminize it to change the questions so that they were directed to women in every way that I could make it so. Um, but then I thought, you know, Katrina, why are you moving away from what you do best? <laughs> um, but then I said, well, maybe I can merge the two together. So the survey was used as a conversation tool more than anything. That's what I thought at first anyway. I thought, people think, here's... Um, a professor from Hopkins coming to ask me to do some research with her, so clearly she's going to have some kind of formal document on her. Fine, I'll give you a survey, right? And the, in the back of the book, you have the list of all the questions that they were asked. And then when the women agreed to show up to an interview with me, they brought that survey to me, and I really only focused on one question. And the question had to do with, what do you think about black womanhood? Right? Later, I realized the survey was actually very useful, (laughs) and I was able to integrate it into the analysis as well. But really, I just thought that this is a way of getting them to think of me credibly, to come in with a formal document, right? Um, So 126 women uh, I first um, introduced the work to. Ultimately, um, there were 88 women who agreed to actually sit down. That's a lot of people, actually. Uh, Each interview was almost two hours long, and the transcriptions, as you can imagine, are are very rich. 
of those women, 60% were from the middle classes and about 40% were from the lower classes. But in absolute numbers, they're almost almost equal, 47 versus 41. Now, um, on the one hand, we know in our society that 60-40 is warped, right? But for the purposes of doing this kind of work, to have it's rare to have a data set where you have almost as many middle-class women as you have lower-class. So I have an advantage of being able to, to have a, a, a decent amount of both to compare and contrast. Where did I get these women? Well, you're not going to believe this. I spent a year in the women's prison that was downtown. Um, and interviewed about 19, I believe, of the women who were incarcerated at the time. They were actually in that waiting stage, you know, waiting for their trials. It was a very sad context. But they were very willing to tell their stories to me. Um, I also spent time in hair salons. Now, you'll see here at the bottom, I talk about culture-regulated, market-regulated, and state-regulated sites. There were different sites so that I could get a breath of experience of women. So I'll read you a little bit about the nature of these sites. And it was since I anticipated that the context of women's interaction would likely shape the interactions they had, where are you when you are encountering other black women? Um, The sites were intentionally chosen so as to be differentiated by how they were regulated, by culture, by the market, and by the state. No hypotheses were intended as to how One's gender, ethnic identity, and consciousness might vary in these contexts. The objective was primarily to make sure I got a diverse group of women in my data set. For the purposes of the study, I'm defining culture-regulated sites as those established and managed for the express purpose of serving some cultural imperative. The local chapters of two well-respected black sororities were chosen to represent such sites, given that their focus on community outreach and racial uplift for African-American women has been longstanding. Women members of the Black Faculty and Staff Association at a local predominantly white elite university were selected for similar reasons. The organization, I guess, is very focused on the work of uplift. Two local hair salons were chosen to represent market-regulated sites. Though they are also unique cultural spaces for black women, their primary motive is clearly profit-making. How did I do that? I chose to work at the hair salon. I didn't do any hair. I did work at the reception desk, (laughs) and I chit-chatted and got women to follow me into this research. The two state-regulated research sites fall under the umbrella of public safety and corrections. I chose these latter two sites specifically for their large representation of black women from the lower class or for the opportunity to include in the study hard-to-reach women with substance abuse, domestic abuse, and criminal justice problems. So I had to actually dwell in these spaces to gather the women I needed in order um, to be able to say to you today that I think I I reached a a breadth of experience to tell the story I ultimately tell. So what did I actually learn? I want to introduce you to Victoria. Victoria is age 35, and this is what she said to me. I see black women, instead of being passive bells, They're women, they're vibrant, they're colorful, they're diverse, they're strong. Even when I worked with a group of ladies now who are ex-addicts or in the process of recovering, call it whatever you will, it's strength. So often we have been made to feel helpless and hopeless, and yet we still not only survive, we thrive. We love, we laugh, we nurture, 
we still carry the future in our hands. It's strength. So yes, I love the black woman, and I'm humbled by her. This is representative of a lot of the comments that I receive from women. Um, and ultimately, I took their comments, and I tried to um, organize the thoughts that pervaded across the entire data set. And these are the kinds of findings we had. First of all, despite what is popular in America's mind, the extent to which black women positively define themselves individually and collectively with regard to their gender ethnic um, identity is quite large. That's the story of the book. One might immediately assume that what Dr. McDonald is going to write about is all this conflict, all this talk back and forth. Her nails are too long, her hair is weaved, her this and that. That was not what women talked about. They talked about who they felt they were as black women in this world. So they talked um, in great depth about how they naturally connect and bond with women wherever they go. And one of the places that comes up over and over again is the church house. The black church house is a gathering place where women find one another and bond. But they also talked about other very casual spaces. Um, I define it as normative empathy. That's the phrase I use to talk about. So that natural tendency of a group of people who have suffered a similar kind of oppression find one another and rely on one another for survival. And so the women talked about that um, at great length. Um, and find that they survive through the bonds that they make with other women. In the book, I acknowledge a group of women who made me. Um, first and foremost were the women in my family, hands down, right? Um, I grew up with a single mother. I lived in a household with my mother, my aunt, and my grandmother, and a bunch of cousins until later in life, uh, and they fought for me every day, right? I could look in the audience, at, you know, I'm playing my little violin, there they are. Uh, I could be in a play, there they are. I could be singing, so, you know, they were there. And granted, they were my elders and they were my mothers, but we connected on a sisterly level. It wasn't just that they were my biological kin, they were my political kin, you understand? And so for me, motherhood is one step toward understanding the bond of sisterhood among black women. Um, as a side, <clears throat> My friends in the some of my friends on my in the audience know this. I said I grew up as an only child, right? Well, my son decided to do a DNA test a year ago. I now know I'm one of eight. I'm one of eight, and guess what? Three of them live in this area. For 25 years, I never knew I had a two sisters and a brother less than an hour away. We now hang out all the time. <laughs> Also, as a woman told me their stories, they kept evoking the word sister without my prompting. <laughs> they used the word over and over again. They also used sister friend. And you hear that more now than you do, I think, just sister, right? Yeah, yeah, my sister friend, that's my sister friend. Where does that sister, anybody know where that phrase even comes from? Well, there was a woman who still, I didn't know if she had passed. It doesn't look like she has. It looks like she's 81 years old. Her name is Billy Avery. Billy Avery led the National Black Women's Health Project for many, many years. She is a pioneer in the reproductive health of black women. She's an amazing individual. I got to meet her years ago at a conference, and, and she pretty much put me on the path to you know, really uh, engaging in, in, in various subjects affecting black women's lives. She said 
that she and her friends one day were talking with each other, talking about girlfriend. They said, we're too old for that. We can't say girlfriend no more. We're too old. And they start calling each other sister friend, and it caught on. <laughs> the study also shows that black women are united in feeling devalued and disregarded by society. Common theme. This is uh, one comment about such thing. It's like, she says, we're not too far from slaves. I mean, it's just that there's a question there about African-American women. And do people think we're good or whatever? We were the workhorses from the bedroom to the fields. And still I think that people have that overall sentiment that we don't have any worth. Common theme. Right? In this society, women, black women still feel that they are the last to get respect, um, which is, uh, goodness, I didn't think I was going to bring this up tonight, but I have to say his name, R. Kelly. This mess with R. Kelly, I'm telling you something, is reflective of the devaluation of black women, granted by black men, but in an American society. It's a hor- If you haven't watched it, I tell you don't. If you haven't watched The Lifetime, Many of you probably have. I'm not sleeping well since I've seen it. So there are lots of different ways. That's the most graphic way that black women often find themselves in a devalued situation, but sometimes it's on the job. You know, it's in the neighborhood. People wanting to, you know, there's a woman who's written a book called The Grind. It just came out last year. Woman from Cal State Dominguez Hills in Southern California. The grind is based in East Oakland, California, and the plight of black women, um, poor black women, uh, I think they are all mothers. She wants to understand what it's like day to day to get by on virtually nothing, right? She calls it the grind. In a moment, you'll hear me call it the struggle. It's a fascinating book. You should check that out. Um, But you see, for instance, women, she talks about women going in grocery stores. And the people check, you know, because they're poor (laughs) and they got food stamps. You know, the cashier won't even tell them the things on sale when it should be on sale. Well, she doesn't get the sale price. Or they give her the wrong change and she says, you gave me the wrong change. No, I didn't. Stories like that over and over again. The people just dismissing them, right? So this is what I'm getting at in terms of devaluation and disregard. It's funny, the same women who are oppressed by these ideas also will speak in a minute about black women's history. They know their history. <laughs> They'll start talking about some important figure like a Billy Avery or like a Alice Walker or like a whatever. And in fact, in the chapter I told you about where I look back into Africa, over and over again, they talk about the queen warriors. See, as children, we heard those tales from our mothers about these queen warriors of Africa and these women like Sojourner Truth who got us through slavery and so forth. And so that alone helps to undergird us when we're being devalued in the ways that I'm describing. So women who, just because they're, quote, of the lower classes, you think they don't know nothing? Oh, yes, they do. They know that history, and they will evoke it when they need to to say, I am somebody, right? Black women continue to forge what's called a womanist standpoint. Um, Does anybody know where the term womanist rather than feminist came from? Alice Walker. Alice Walker, the wonderful writer, once said, womanist is to feminist as purple 
is to lavender. By womanist, she means, first of all, again, this is a political reality that came from black women being uh, cut out of the feminist movement, of both movements, right? Black women didn't have a place in the national feminist movement. And they began to forge a kind of movement of their own apart from that. And womanists came from, and as much as we want to argue the woman's right, we've got to talk about the black man's right too. We can't afford to separate our political um, journey from that of black men. They felt that white women were focused on what they wanted and how their men had done, and they're just going to do. They want rights and they want this, but we didn't have that luxury. <laughs> Because our black men were also downtrodden. So womanist is is an expression of the way in which black women embrace uh, feminist ideology, but with a twist, a lavender, right? Twist. So this is Rochelle. She's a 53-year-old physician, and she says this. And I should move ahead so that I can put this a little better in perspective. Here's the struggle um, element. Um, Black women... Like I said, that you struggle as almost a mantra of life. I struggle. And let me just say this first about Rochelle, what Rochelle had to say. Every single day, from the people who clean the floor all the way up to the people that I deal with, you have to figure out, you have to figure it out as an African-American woman in a positive fashion because my whole thing is about how, how do I do um, best behave to reflect a positive image of us as a people. I ha- in other words, she's saying on a day-to-day basis, I have to always think about how I'm behaving because it sends a message about what a black woman is. She says, and I don't like it sometimes. In fact, I get very tired of it, having to be representative, being it's a big burden on me. Um, every day you're having to, to be that example. But you don't have a choice. Now there are others who feel different, but I feel that because we are just beginning to make some inroads into the larger society and, in, and into our own lives even, we don't have a choice but to be examples, and that's tough. I don't always make it, but that's my objective. So the struggle constantly comes up in these conversations with black women, and they tend to be organized in these four sets. Life is a struggle for black women as they strive for economic and physical well-being. Life is a struggle to hold black families together. Life is a struggle to, to not forget where you come from. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And life is a struggle to endure all this negative regard that the world has for black women. When we talk about forget where you come from, it stems from this idea of black women claiming an authentic, an authentic authenticity in being a black woman. Now that is a tough word to grasp because you're like, who says what's authentic and what's not? But there's still this challenge, and this happens in the black community as a whole and probably, and well, I know for a fact, almost every minority ethnic community about whether you're being real or not. Right? Are you being real? Are you a real Hispanic? Are you a real Asian? Are you a real black? Right? Black women play that game too. It kind of breaks into two different veins. One is that one has to do with black culture, whether you're being true to the culture of black people, what we do, how we do it, or are you doing something else? So we have black children struggling all the time because they're being told they're acting white. Right in the school on the school ground and so forth. My son suffered that so much. Right, you're acting white. You talk white. Your clothes aren't white. You're not playing rap music. Da 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 da. 
right? You're not being authentic is a challenge, right? So not forgetting where you come from is you're supposed to gravitate towards something that's authentic, but we're all struggling to figure out what the authentic thing is. And the other has to do with social mobility. Here you are. Now you're the president of a company. Now you got a Cadillac. Now you got this. You forgot where you came from. Are you giving back to the community? A lot of, a lot of tension around such things. It's a struggle to live in black skin. All these things come at you on a day-to-day basis. Colorism is a term that we give to that problem of uh, people assuming that color defines all that you are, right? So again, our children suffer from constantly trying to prove they're black enough. And there was a set of theories uh, over the last 20 years, it's been somewhat debunked now, that the reason that there is so much difficulty in our educational system with minority students progressing, I mean, we know what the dropout rate is right here in Baltimore for black boys. It's over 50% now, I think. Um, it is, it is um, I think the Hispanic male numbers are climbing. So that's a black male number I was talking about in terms of dropout rate. The Hispanic numbers aren't far behind now. And a lot of the argument was that, you know, they have to try to be authentic, and being authentic, you can't be smart. You can't know the work. You can't, you know. And we're trying to turn that mess around. We're really trying. But in the end, it was kind of debunked that it wasn't quite that fierce, that the, the element of that in lives of, of, of young people aren't so fierce. I'm not quite sure. But times are changing, too. We're in a, you know, where we are now, children today have access to things that we didn't have, like the Internet. They're, you know, they get to access a lot, and there are so many different kinds of identities. You know, this goes for women too. You used to never see women on the internet with natural hair, <laughs> where you can't get anywhere now, right, and not see it. So things are changing, and so maybe the myths of the of the old are being washed away, in that we are more accepting. But that issue of authenticity is pretty profound. So. There's discord, too. There's unity, but there's, there is that discord. Many lament that, again, the increasing class diversity among black women is leading the sisterhood slowly into something more akin to black stepsisterhood and less akin to the sisterhood of our cultural legacy. Talk about class conflict. So it's hearkening back to that class theory that's been around for many, many, many decades, that class, in fact, was going to undermine all that had been the wealth of black culture. We're certainly not there. There's no demise, but there's concern about we be, we've become so diverse, we don't know our center. So the women talked a lot about that, talked a lot about their angst of, you know, I feel so strongly about being a black woman, but there's some black women I don't quite grasp. Their lives are so different. Hence the Oprah photo at the beginning, right? I use Oprah as a metaphor in this book, as a woman that I cannot reach if I try. I, as a black woman, I'm never going to truly be able to embrace her because I don't know that kind of money. <laughs> I don't know that many cars. I don't know those big, you know, I don't know that. Yet I still connect with her, but I can't deny that her life is way different from mine, right? That's the point. Hence, there are, a, there are indeed class differences among women, and the differences in my data pop up around that issue of struggle, as to which, which struggle is more prevalent. That makes sense, though, right? If you're more middle class, your struggle's going to be a bit different than if you're lower class. 
And the other thing is their social political ideology. Where are they on the political spectrum? There is some difference there. So those are the two areas where I found any difference worth talking about. But it was enough to make sure that I spoke it in a separate chapter. A number of scholars still say that for African Americans, uh, this has been, again, a long, a long history of debate. Social relations are less stringently aligned by class position among African Americans and among whites. In other words, class is less so powerful than it is among whites, but it's still, it's still there. Um, and it, make, of course, makes sense. If you've been part of an oppressed group for centuries, there's going to be more bond, bonding around the, the critical element, which is race. Uh, people are now debating race for whites, right? We have a lot of, there are now, you can now major in white studies. Did you know that? <laughs> you can major in some universities because they've, they've really had to help whites understand there's blackness, there's Asian, there's whiteness too, right? You have to understand it as we've spent ancient times trying to understand black existence. Um, my point there being that people have embraced, are beginning, and it's the, it's the young generations that are beginning to say, wait a minute, yeah, I've been carrying some privilege. Yeah, it's true. Let me figure out how to deal with that. That's what the white studies area is, is helping people do. I have a friend here in, in, in town who is, has just applied for a grant that she asked me to be on where she is specifically looking at helping white women through that journey of understanding that they possess a whiteness, right? So there is whiteness and there's blackness, and class intersects differently is the point. And in this book, though, I am delighted to say that that um, small dimension of class as a conflict issue um, is overwhelming, meaning I found much more focus in their discussions about the privilege of being black and being a woman than I did any real concerns they had about class difference. So that was the big surprise for me. In fact, I had already written five pages that I thought were going to be the beginning of my book about the significance of class. And when I did my data analysis, I'm like, look at there. <laughs> it really isn't as big as we think it is, that there is still to this day a very strong sense that black women need one another and live through one another. So I say this in my conclusion of to the book. Lest I be accused of over-romanticizing about black sisterhood, I acknowledge that for many black women, the view across class lines can be painfully unpleasant. We know that if we choose to watch those stupid shows <laughs> um, and you know, exist in certain spaces, certainly you see where people are just unkind across class. They, they don't like the uppity, they don't like the poor. Okay? But what is also real is that black women have typically imagined these tendencies to be miles apart when in fact they are more like yards apart. At the end of the day, that's what I learned from my study, is yes, there are tensions among black women, but they're far less than people depict. We've let people, we, we've allowed ourselves to be convinced that there's conflict, but it isn't really as much as people claim. And then finally, I say, 
What I believe is most valuable about this research is the realization that it potentially brings to black women about the differences and particularly the lack of differences among them. There is much evidence here of a sisterhood ripe for new activism and for new challenges and there exists a unity that many black women may have thought had passed away. And then there's Michelle Obama. At the end of the book, I talk about Oprah a lot. And there's actually a chapter on Oprah. I finally said I can't avoid it because <laughs> the women talked about her. And so there's an interesting chapter where the women actually say kind of how they attach or not attach to the Oprah. And it does sort of differ by class a little bit where the middle classes are a little bit more embracing. But they're all over the place about her. This is a while ago. Now, Oprah's come a long way since I finished this book. One way or another, however you envision that, right? She's talking about running for president. I personally don't like celebrities running for president. I didn't like them running for governor in California. But I don't want to make assumptions that people can't somehow forge through all that and really lead us, whoo, Trump over what we have now. So what if there was a new social movement for black women? What if they joined in the way that the Me Too movement has joined together to fight oppression and other groups? There are a lot of splinter groups around. What if Michelle decided to lead something? Would we follow? Back in the day, I knew if Oprah, Oprah opened her mouth, we'd all be lined up. 10, 15 years ago, she could have said, let's go, and every black woman in the nation would have said, point me in the way. My book has had a new um, circulation since Obama's, Michelle's book came out, right? Because, again, women are thinking, black women are saying, ah, we have an opportunity. There's an opportunity to improve our lives. There's an opportunity for us to make strides in the world. And maybe it's a Michelle Obama who leads the way. Who knows? But I'd like to see something happen. Thank you very much. I'd be happy to entertain questions or comments. Yes. When you mentioned, and I had this conversation with students today, um, about it's okay to show that you're intelligent, because I'm an educator at an adult learning center. I know that in public school and your past experiences with education, it wasn't okay to show that you were smart. I've had a student say to me today, People tell me I sound white, or I talk white, or I act white. I said, what does that mean? Clearly understanding what she was saying, but I speak proper English. I said, and that's okay. And I've had a guy tell me, Miss Davis, it's not okay. It's not cool for me to speak this way around my friends. I said, adapt to the environment that you're in. If you're in school, if you're sitting for an interview, if you're at work, speak proper English. But if that's the way you communicate with your peers, that is okay. But just be able to adjust to where you are and who you're with. So thank you very much for bringing that up. And it ain't just children. It ain't, it ain't just children. Adults are playing that same game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's great. That's wonderful. I should point out, this lady behind you, Sharon Smith, used to be the assistant pastor at UBC. Right there. In the green. <laughs> She's talking about strong cities next door. She's talking about the building next door to UBC. Where she, that's where she has, right. 
that's how, that's how she and I met, because I was a member of UBC. So yeah, this, is, this continues to be an issue. I don't know how we overcome that. And young black girls, um, often that translates into um, how they dress, you know, thinking that if I dress a particular way, it's sending off a signal that I'm not black enough. Um, and certainly this idea that if I show my intelligence, I mean, that's, it's sad but true. Again, I think we've come a ways from where we were 25 years ago, because remember, there was a whole movement coming out of Oakland, California, right, that was trying to change the way we did education to adapt. They called it Ebonics, remember? They wanted to adapt by changing, you know. And there was a lot, I mean, I mean, there was a lot of people on that bandwagon, and they had a good intention, but the fear, you know, what our fear was is that, the, but the person who hires them won't hire them. It'll be good in a lot of other places, but it won't hire them. Black women were at the head of that movement. They were at the head of the movement to try to figure out how do we help black children succeed better in school given that they have, again, that particular struggle. Anyone else? Yes. <laughs> what is positive behind that impulse, though, you know, to not be... To wait, wait, to not be black enough. Like there, if there's something positive there, I think that's a great way of looking at how to get, how to acknowledge that, and also adjust, right? Well, there's a term called code switching, which is what she was referring to. That, you know, and more often than not, um, people have struck a balance in that by trying to help a child navigate different social spaces, when to put on a particular self. But what did that woman say? She said, that tires my ass out. It's tiring. I had to do it. It's exhausting. And white folks don't have to do it. And that's so, you know, so it's, it's the only tool we have is teaching them to migrate through it. But know that it has a weight on the body. I mean, that is exhausting work. Every day, one minute you're this, one minute you don't say that to that person. Don't, don't walk that way in front of that person. My grandmother used to tell me, don't go outside with your shoes off. Do you, anybody remember that? Because white people laugh at you because they look at your feet and say what? You look like a monkey. Oh, yeah. I couldn't take my shoes off when I was a kid. All the other kids running around with their shoes off, I couldn't take mine off. You know what I do now? I run around with my shoes off all the time because I couldn't go barefoot when I was a kid. You know what I mean? It's exhausting to constantly switch and dive and duck in order just to exist. Yet we know, again, we're trying to st strike a balance. Once again, black women have been at the forefront of that teaching. Why? Because they're mothers. <laughs> they're the ones that usually have to impart these lessons at home to keep them safe when they go out the door, to just get them safe out the door. Uh, there's, a, there's a, is that in this book? I think, it, I think somewhere in this book I put it, it was definitely my dissertation years ago. Um, <laughs> I made the mistake the first time I went to see Boys in the Hood, that movie Boys in the Hood that was set in South Central, L.A.? Was it South Central? Someplace in L.A., in the ghetto of L.A. And that amazing story about these two smart kids, right? One boy and one girl who are just trying to get through to graduate because he's going to Morehouse and she's right going to Spelman, I think, right? And all around them, everybody's dying, drugs. It was just the, it's just a heart-wrenching movie. What the hell was I thinking? I had two little black boys in my house. I cried through the whole thing. I couldn't even leave the theater for 20 minutes. I said, how am I going to get these boys to 20 years old? That's a weight 
on the body. That's part of that struggle I was talking about. The black mothers have to think constantly about how do I get my boys to 18. It's awful. <laughs> and until we change the shape of our society, we're going to have that particular struggle. We worry about our girls too, but we're, what? we're constantly with the boys, constantly jockeying them to keep them alive. That's part of that struggle. Anyone else? Well, I want to thank you for coming. I appreciate it so very much. And I hope I've given you something to think about. And uh, I have a friend in town. His name is Verlando Brown. I saw him a couple weeks ago. He's friends with Michelle Obama, and I'm very jealous. <laughs> he's a first-gen um, college student, and she has a wonderful first-gen program, and he's been used as her ambassador, and I'm so proud of him. <laughs> so I snuck a book to him and told him to give it to her. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming, everybody. Thank you, Professor McDonald. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.